starting a new book this morning. So we wrapped up the book of Acts last week, concluded a year and a half study on the workings and the history of the early church. So with that, open to the book of Acts, chapter 17, <laughs> and we'll get there. But in, in our studies, we saw how the Apostle Paul had made four trips to the West. He made three missionary journeys. Actually, the fourth was very similar. It was just an involuntary missionary journey when he uh, went to Rome, that harrowing trip that we finished looking at last week. So on his first journey, probably in about 48 or 49, as he answered God's call to take the gospel to the Gentiles, Paul traveled with a man named Barnabas, a guy from Cyprus, a Jewish guy from Cyprus, a devout man that had actually gone up to Tarsus and and gotten Paul and brought him back to Antioch, to his church, uh, and the two teamed up. So when they took off, when they were preparing to get off, to, get, to go off on their journey, Barnabas said, hey, I, my nephew here, a guy by the name of John Mark, would like to go with us. And so Paul said, fine. And so they set out from Antioch in Syria, that's north of Jerusalem, uh, a number of miles, uh, uh, up along the west coast or the, the east coast of the Mediterranean. They set out from Antioch and they first went to the island of Cyprus. Uh, they evangelized their way across the island and then got down to the west coast of the island and they jumped on a, a ship and they sailed to the southern coast of what we know as Turkey, but it was Asia Minor in, in that region. And so they were now on the mainland and they were going to go up and to begin to evangelize in the regions of Asia Minor, specifically the region of Galatia, which was uh, a whole region there that that uh, there were a number of churches they'd end up planting there. So uh, they made it as far as Perga, which is not very far from the coast after they landed there. Uh, it, it, it's also, it's a city that's at the base of the Taurus Mountains. And the Taurus Mountains are like, it'd be like the Cascades. I mean, they were, it was a, a significant mountain range. And so there they are, they're looking up at these mountains. They have to go over the mountains to get to where they wanted to be, to Antioch and Pisidia, which is another Antioch. Don't get confused about that. And so it was at that point that John Mark decided to, he, he decided he was going to bail. He'd, he, I don't know what his reasoning was. He might have looked at that and went, uh, I ain't going to go up there. Yeah, we don't know. But he decided to turn back, to go back to Jerusalem, to his home. So Paul and Barnabas, they, they went ahead. And in that trip, they suffered a lot of hardship. Uh, Paul got sick. He, he was very ill. They were persecuted significantly as they went through the different regions. We looked at all of that in the book of Acts earlier. Uh, and so they ended up planting a number of churches, and again, in the region of Galatia, and then also in Pamphylia, which was another region, another province of Rome. So they concluded their trip roughly a year later, returned to their home church at Antioch. Uh, and after they got there, there were some false teachers that showed up from Jerusalem. They were trying to compel the Gentiles to follow the law of Moses and to be circumcised and all of that. So the decision was made that Paul and Barnabas would go to Jerusalem. They would consult with the apostles and the elders there, the head of the leaders of the church, and they would get their take on what was going on. So they went to Jerusalem. At that point, the elders, the apostles, they drafted a letter to send back. And they said, look, we're not going to require the Gentiles to be subject to the law of Moses. We're not going to require them to be circumcised. But we would really like to recommend that they 
abstain from things which were a source of stumbling, a source of division among their Jewish brethren, the, the Jewish Christians that had, that had converted, Jews that had converted. So when they did that, they thought, well, we need to send some guys. We don't want this to be Paul and Barnabas's opinion, wink, wink. So they sent a couple of guys, a couple of leaders from the Jerusalem church back with them. A guy by the name of Judas, not that Judas. <laughs> it was a common name. But an, and then another guy named Silas. So they sent them back so that they could testify to the authenticity of this letter. So they went back to Jerusalem with Paul and Barnabas. And about that time, Paul and Barnabas began to talk between themselves about the fact that they needed to go back and to shore up the work that they had done on this first journey. They needed to go back and strengthen the churches, especially the churches in Galatia. And so that was the plan. That was what they were going to do. So at that point, Barnabas says, hey, let's take John Mark. <laughs> Paul wasn't having any of that. So Paul decided, you know, he, Paul absolutely stood against. He said, no, we are not taking him. He bailed out on us. I'm paraphrasing, but he bailed out on us the first journey you know, we were relying on him and then all of a sudden he was gone. You know, no, we're not going to do that. So we're told at the end of Acts 15 that a great dissension arose between Paul and Barnabas as a result of this, this argument that they had, and they decided to split. So Barnabas took John Mark, went back to the island of Cyprus, where he was from, by the way. And so they were going to go evangelize the island there. And Paul, at the same time, the two guys that had come from Jerusalem, Judas and Silas. Judas decided to go back home. He wanted to go back to Jerusalem. Silas said, well, you know, I think I'll stick around. And so Paul approaches Silas and says, hey, I'm taking off. You want to go with me? And so Silas and Paul now set out on what would be his second missionary journey. So I hope you're tracking with me here. We're going to, and then we'll get into some slides here in a second. Uh, slide one here, it shows the route of Paul's second journey. As he and Silas set out over land this time, they didn't go across the water like they did on his first journey, and they passed through Paul's home territory of, of Tarsus, and they were intending to visit the churches in Galatia in order to share this letter from Jerusalem, because there was already a lot of dissent going on. The Jews were trying to pervert the gospel. You read the, the letter to the church at Galatia, or to the Galatians, uh, it was a, a group of churches, Paul is hopping mad because they were perverting the gospel. So they're sharing this letter as they went, and, and that was the whole intent. So if you look, the red line is Paul's outbound, Paul and Silas. Now, their outbound trip, the dotted blue line is when they returned. He, he returned from Corinth to first to Ephesus and then back to Jerusalem and then back to Antioch, to his home church. We won't get into that. But So while they're there, they're in the region of Derby here in the, the second slide. They were joined by a reputable young believer by the name of Timothy. All right, this guy had a reputation in the church there from the church that they had planted before. His mother was a Jewish woman who was a devout woman, devout believer. Um, his father was a Greek. Don't know much about him other than that he was... So here's Timothy. He was the son of a Greek man and a Jewish woman, had come to know the Lord Jesus. And so Paul gets a hold of him, finds out that this guy is really gifted or whatever it was. I mean, there was something about Timothy that really attracted Paul. Uh, to bring him now along with he and Silas on this journey. So they continue westward, and Paul's intention now, it's interesting because his intention was to drop uh, down and to preach the word in Asia, and the Holy Spirit forbid them to do it. <laughs> God said no. And believe me, folks, if God says no, it's no. <laughs> and so 
At that point, Paul says, well, all right, then we'll go north. We won't go south and, and to the west. We'll go north. We'll go into the province of Bithynia. And God said, no. <laughs> and so he blocked them both directions. He said, no, I don't want you to do that. So they were prevented. The three men then continued west until the, they came to the, uh, the port city. They actually they kind of ran out of land. And they came to the port city of Troas. All right, uh, in the fourth slide here. So it was at Troas where the three, now Paul, Silas, and Timothy, met up with a doctor by the name of Luke. And I could go into a whole background on Luke. There's no time for that this morning. Fascinating, fascinating guy. Wrote the, the gospel according to Luke and wrote the book of Acts, which we just con- concluded. And uh, it would be the beginning of an enduring relationship between Paul and Luke uh, that would last many years all the way up until Paul would be imprisoned and then finally executed in Rome. Luke was at his side through the whole thing. So in Troas, Paul, at one night, he received a vision from the Lord of a, a man from Macedonia that was pleading with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So here the Lord had blocked them from going north, had blocked them from going south. They ended up going west. They get to the, to the coast and the Lord gives him a vision and says, you need to come to Macedonia. And so the four men then, they, I'm sure they discussed it. <laughs> and they set out from Troas, crossed the Aegean Sea, and came to the city of Philippi. All right. That, and by the way, that marks the first time the gospel would go to the European continent. Once they crossed the sea, they're, now they're in Europe. There they met a woman named Lydia down by the river. Before long, Lydia and her family came to know Christ and and word began to spread, and before long, the Philippian church was born. And when you read Philippians, it's to them, all right? That's, that's the Philippian church. It was also in Philippi, uh, where after Paul exercised a demon from a slave girl, <laughs> that didn't go well with her owners because she was going around prophesying, and then they kind of cut off their revenue stream there, that he and Silas would be dragged before the magistrates of the city, and there they would be stripped naked and beaten with rods. I remember when we looked at that in our study, these guys had bundles of rods and they would beat these men senseless, threw them into jail. Again, I would love to reteach it, but we've looked at it in recent months. But let's just say that through a remarkable series of events, the Philippian jailer, his entire household, by the end of that night, came to know the Lord Jesus themselves. Consequently, when the magistrates, magistrates, the guys that had them beaten, when they learned that Paul was a Roman citizen, they were not happy. They, they were subject to the death penalty for beating and imprisoning a Roman citizen without due process. It'd be like somebody just carting you off to jail. Yeah, and, and I could get into all weird stuff there. <laughs> but truly, they were in trouble and they knew it. And so they come and they appeal to Paul and Silas, who are who had been in this jail. We're not sure where Timothy was or Luke at this point. Evidently, they dodged the bullet. But they come and they, they say, would you please leave? And Paul says, no, I'm not going to leave. <laughs> I'm going to stay right here. I know my rights as a Roman citizen, and you can't force me to leave. What he was doing in that, he wasn't just being stubborn, but he was ensuring that the governing officials in Philippi would not be heavy-handed with the church as they had been with him. He was sending them a message, and he sent them a powerful message. Look, you're on the hook for this, and I'm willing to walk, but you better be really careful. I mean, that was what was going on in the background there. So uh, they take off. They, <laughs> they leave Luke in Philippi. 
Uh, and Paul and Timothy and Silas now head west once again. They come to the city of Thessalonica. Uh, this, uh, the sixth slide we have here. It was the largest city in the capital of Macedonia in the northern part of Greece. So centuries before, just a little background on the city, the city had been called Therma because there's some hot springs in the area. And in 315 BC, during the, the Greek empire, one of Alexander the Great's generals, a guy by the name of Cassander, came in and rebuilt the city. Now, Cassander had married his half-sister. You wonder if he's related to Agrippa. <laughs> These guys, I'll tell you. It was one of the daughters of Philip of Macedon, and he was the guy that Macedonia got their name after. Uh, and her name was Thessalonica. So when he rebuilt the city, he changed the name, honoring his wife uh, to Thessalonica. And, and it, that city remains today, by the way. And it's still called, it's Thessaloniki, I think, or something like that. But a huge city. We'll look at some slides uh, in coming weeks. It, at the ruins, it's interesting because usually when you see Roman ruins in these cities, the ancient cities, it's the ruins and that's it. But this is like ruins and high-rise buildings all around them. It's fascinating. So uh, anyway, not enough time to look at that today. So they changed this city's name to Thessalonica. Now, Acts 17, verse 1. If you have a Bible, you can open it with me there. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preached to you is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one that Israel waited for. And he's the one that can save your soul. Verse four, and then some of them were persuaded and I love the wording here, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. So something remarkable was taking place in this predominantly Gentile city. Now we're told that Paul and his companions, they spent three Sabbaths, three weekends at the synagogue there. And this tremendous outpouring of the Holy Spirit took hold. I mean, it was just, it would have been a phenomenal thing to behold. They're not there very long and huge numbers of people are giving their lives to Christ, forsaking their elders or their idols and coming to know Jesus personally. So as we go along in Acts 17, I want to summarize a little bit. The unbelieving Jews then at Thessalonica, it says that they became envious. We don't like the fact that these guys are attracting these big crowds. And so they went to the marketplace, grabbed some evil men, <laughs> some rabble-rousers, and they stirred the city into an uproar. They caused a riot. Now, at that point, and we could go into, they attacked the house of this guy named Jason, and they can't find Paul. So Paul knows now that he is a hunted man. These guys are being hunted now by the people that were opposing them. And so they hustle Paul and Silas by night away to the city of Berea, which was about 43 miles away from Thessalonica. Once again, they go directly to the synagogue and they begin to preach Christ at the Berean, now the Berean synagogue, and to reveal from the scriptures there, that when he talks about the scriptures, remember, we call it the Old Testament. That was the Bible that they had. The New Testament was sort of in process here. <laughs> it wasn't there yet. And so he's going back and he's showing them from all of these different prophetic scriptures, how Jesus was the fulfillment 
of the one that they had been looking for. The outpouring of God's spirit continued now at Berea. In Acts 17, 13, we read, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Well, we don't like that. He's now he moved down the road. So let's, let's go get him. And so they do. They come and they stir up the crowds in Berea. It says immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So we see in 1 Thessalonians 3 that Timothy had been given charge by Paul to remain at Thessalonica to further establish and to strengthen the church. Timothy, he, at that, up until this point, he was probably the lesser known of the three. Remember, Luke's in Philippi. He's not with him. It's Timothy, Silas, and Paul. And Paul says, look, Timothy, go back. I've got to get out of here. <laughs> I'm a wanted man. You go back to Thessalonica, continue to, bur- to work and to build up the church there. So that's what took place. And we, we find that again in 1 Thessalonians. He makes mention of that. As he got to Athens now... Paul sent word back to the, with the men who had delivered him there. He said, look, have Timothy and Silas rejoin me straight away. So now he's traveling alone. He's been, his guys have been dropping off here. He's traveling alone when he arrives at Athens. And Paul notes that the city was a stronghold of pagan idols. Uh, I remember when Stacy and I went to Thailand, it was like, oh my goodness, the spirit houses on every corner and all of the, the Buddhist influence there it was, it was creepy. It was very dark. And so Paul gets to Athens and he realizes this is a dark place. So he begins to divide his time between the marketplace, the, the central marketplace, which was the gathering place for the people in the city and the synagogue. So he wants to reach both. He would, as his pattern was, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He goes to the synagogue, not much happening there. He goes out onto the streets, begins to do that. So before long, He's taken before the philosophers on Mars Hill, the Stoics and the philosophers, to a place called the Areopagus. And they want to examine him because they were the guys that licensed preachers in that day. And they want to know, you know, what, what kind of stuff are you spreading here, Paul? So love to go into that. We, we've already looked at it when we were in Acts, but suffice it to say that Paul had very limited success in Athens. We're told at the end of chapter 17 that by contrast to the great multitudes that they saw in Thessalonica, but only a few Athenians had come to believe. It was just a handful. So Acts chapter 18 now, and, and we're getting there. <laughs> Acts 18 unfolds with Paul leaving Athens and making the 60-mile trip west. He's continuing west to the city of Corinth. There he meets with a couple named Aquila and Priscilla. We talked about them last week. They were refugees from Rome because Claudius had had all of them kicked out. And so they had gone to Corinth as well. And Paul teams up with them. He ends up, they were also tent makers, and he ends up living with Priscilla and Aquila. They're practicing their craft together. And at some point, Silas and Timothy rejoin Paul at Corinth. The three men now begin to evangelize the city together. So I have to, and I'm going I'm to interpret a little bit here uh, because it, it makes sense to me because these guys, they were busy going about the work that God had set before them at, at Corinth. But I have to believe that the church at Thessalonica would have definitely been on Paul's and Timothy's and Silas's mind. Uh, they had seen a lot in their travels together. 
as God used them to establish and strengthen churches in the cities that they'd visited. But Thessalonica was different in some ways. Uh, They'd only been there three weeks. They witnessed a powerful, tremendous move of God in that Gentile city. Remember, this is the church is new. It's being established as they went. These people had never heard the gospel before. And so this powerful work had started, and just as quickly as it started, they got booted. As the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the people, huge crowds were coming to faith in Christ, forsaking their pagan deities, coming to know the one true God. Powerful, powerful time. Hearts were being touched, lives being transformed as they embraced Jesus. They had been exciting days, and they were exciting days at Thessalonica. And then, through great opposition... Paul's time in the city had been cut short. It was cut off. Having been forced to leave, Paul would then make several attempts to come back to Thessalonica, and each time he would be hindered from doing so. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 17, we read, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But Satan hindered us. So in Paul's mind, there's unfinished business there. He had left Timothy behind. Now Timothy had rejoined him. No doubt uh, that Timothy had been filling him in on just what was going on, this powerful work of God in that city. By the way, Paul would see the Thessalonians again, but it would be another five years before he could get back there because he goes through Macedonia on his third missionary, missionary journey as he goes north and hooks around the top where that city was. So being reunited now at Corinth, as these three men discussed the things which had taken place at Thessalonica, the Spirit of God came upon Paul at some point and inspired him to begin to write. It was because of the opposition, which cut their time short, that Paul now wrote. It was because there was so much more to say uh, to these people that Paul now took a quill in his hand and began to reach out to them. Folks, once again, I want to mention, we see divine providence in play here. God is working behind the scenes in all of these circumstances, through the adversity, through the difficulty, the persecution, through the attacks of Satan. He's accomplishing his purposes in ensuring that this divinely inspired writing would be transmitted down through the ages to us. And we get to crack it open this morning. In slide 10 here, I want to show, this would be the first of many letters that the apostle would write to churches and people that he'd met along the way throughout his travels. Now, there are some who say that that Galatians was the first thing that he wrote, and that's fair. It might be. I don't think, I think that that, uh, better scholarship leans towards 1 Thessalonians as being the first inspired writing of the New Testament, where this is new stuff. Paul got cut short there. He gets to Corinth. He's got a great burden. And the Spirit of God comes upon him and says, right, what a benefit we share in that. So it's with that understanding that we now turn to that wonderfully inspired letter. Open with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to spend some time here. We're going to go down some roads together. Folks, these five chapters, is a short book. They're packed with instruction on how to live well in light of tough circumstances, but always with an eye towards Christ's return for his bride, for his church. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to note something too. There, 
there, there, there's a, uh, some mention out there in some circles that claim that the study of the second coming of Christ or the study of prophecy is really not that important. They say you need to get grounded in your faith first. <laughs> I have one word for that, hogwash. No, it's not true. I want to point out there's not one Old Testament quote in either First or Second Thessalonians. This is a predominantly Gentile city. Paul is, and Silas and Timothy, they're dealing with Gentiles. He speaks to them not only of the prophetic reality of Christ's coming, but he also speaks of things that are to transpire in the future. Very prophetic. This is all about being grounded in our faith. And every chapter in 1 Thessalonians ends with a reference to the coming of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 10 says to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Chapter 2, verse 19 says, For what is our hope, our joy, our crown, or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Chapter 3, verse 13 says, That he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Chapter 4, the famous rapture chapter, the rapture event. It ends with verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the, in the clouds and to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Chapter 5. It's all about the second coming. Can't wait till we get there. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a prophetic book. First and second Thessalonians are known as Paul's eschatological books. Eschatology is the study of end times, the study of the last things, the study of the final chapter of earth's history as we know it. So my question to you is what do we believe? You know, when I was in California last month, I was blessed to be able to go spend a bunch of time with my family and, and spending time with my granddaughters. And I remember looking at them more than once. I would look at them and just be filled with love and loving concern for them. And I remember thinking, you know, what's ahead for them? Where is this going? What's going to happen? What are they going to experience? What will they have to live through? Look at the news. You know, this generation that we live in, we have never been exposed to more media, (laughs) a great deal of it, junk media, but look at to news from around the world, instantaneous. I I was a child during the Vietnam War, and the big deal then was that they could actually transmit the war into your living room because it was that instantaneous. That had never happened before in all of history. It's never been more depressing than it is in our day. It's terrible out there, folks. But, but... When the horizontal gets overwhelming, the vertical seems sweeter than ever. And that's where we're going with this study. As Paul, he's directing this church to the enduring hope that they have. This new baby Christian church, he writes to them about the second coming of Christ. He wants them to know there is hope. This isn't all that there is. But he doesn't do that. I want you to pay attention to this because we don't want to be prophecy weirdos. Okay, well, maybe not all of us. No, I'm kidding. But we don't want to be prophecy nuts where that's all we do is walk around. Oh, you know. No, he doesn't do that at the expense of daily living, at the expense of deep discipleship. Rather, he writes this letter to promote serious-minded discipleship and to encourage them to live 
expectantly. And folks, if there's a theme that I see that seeps out of the pages of this letter, it's that we live in the expectation of Christ's return. Because that colors the way I interact with the world around me now, today. Look, the only way you're going to have your head screwed on straight in the here and now is if you have an accurate view of what's going to take place in the there and then. That's true. Now, something that's interesting, in fact, the second coming of Christ is the broadest subject in the entire New Testament. I don't know if you knew that. It averages about one out of every 10 verses. Is it any surprise that this is being talked about? Uh, No, I, I don't think so. Folks, understand where this is coming from. It's from the king of heaven. And he's telling us things might get tough. It might look bleak. But when you see all these things, just remember, I'm at the door. And I believe he is. I believe time is short. I, I, as I prayed for where to go next, and, and Lord, what would you want me to teach next? I, I had a very strong leading from the Holy Spirit to come and to get into this book, How to Live Well in Really Strange Times. How to live expectantly with our eyes on that, enabling us to make sense of this. Essentially, Jesus is saying, I'm coming for you. I love you. I paid for you. You're blood bought. You're my bride. I'm going to come soon. I'm going to take you home. So be expectant, expecting that. Folks, that's my prayer for our church. That as we study this powerful letter together, to, to better learn to live expectantly. That we take a sensible approach to be equipped in the face of the challenges that we see all around us as we grow deeper in our understanding that eternity forever in the presence of our King is just a blink away. Verse 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he starts off with Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Now, Silvanus is Silas, all right? You got to understand it's these same three guys. That's why I, I laid the groundwork that I did. These guys are in Corinth. They're together. Silas and Timothy have come back from Macedonia and now they're sitting with Paul and they're sharing all that God is doing in this church. And Paul is inspired to write. And and yeah, you know, so often in the New Testament, there is like the Aramaic name Cephas and then the, the Greek name Petros, you know, Peter, Saul and Paul and so on. Same thing going on here. Silvanus is the Greek name for the the Hebrew name, Silas. Uh, uh, Interesting. Paul and Peter refer to him as Silvanus in their letters, but Luke refers to him as Silas. So uh, anyway, that's what's going on there. Don't be confused about that. So Paul includes Silas and Timothy's names here in the introduction to this letter. It's pretty clear, though, that this is not a composite writing. All three of these guys are not writing this. This is Paul writing in the company of Silas and Timothy. So uh, again, I believe that this was written shortly after Timothy and Silas returned. Timothy had given Paul this detailed update, what's happening with the Thessalonians. And so when Paul, and again, remember, this is the first time that Paul is writing anything that's inspired. This is new stuff. I mean, we read through the New Testament and we see that th- these things are mentioned over and over again. In 15 of the 27 books of the New Testament, these two words are coupled, grace and peace are coupled together. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First time. 
Interesting, those two words, don't, don't let them be worn out with you because we read that as the introduction to most of Paul's, all of Paul's letters, except for if you believe he wrote the book of Hebrews, because then it doesn't start with, with Paul, an apostle. It starts with God. I won't go there. I love, I love that whole concept. But he says grace and peace. They're known as the Siamese twins of the New Testament. Uh, it's been said that grace is the fountain and peace is the stream which flows from it. Paul's writing to this Gentile group in Thessalonica saying, you've entered into God's grace. You can't deserve it. You can't work for it. You don't need to listen to Judaism. This is of grace. And what flows from that is the peace of God. It's always grace first, by the way. It's never peace and grace. Because the only way that you're going to understand, the only way that you will experience true peace in your life is by walking in the grace of God. Now, I may take time later, but the word peace, in our vernacular, in our understanding, peace is the absence of conflict. Oh, Shalom goes way deeper than that. It's way beyond the absence of conflict. It is a settledness internally that is being talked about here. It is that sense of I am at peace. It's not just the absence of conflict in my life, but it's, it's, it's a very deep expression. So understand that. He says in verse 2, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. That's a mouthful. Just as a side note, I would, I, I would love to have been in on those prayer meetings as these men got back together. He says, we pray for you all the time, Thessalonians. You're on our hearts. You're in our, on our minds. We're lifting you up. In that, I, I, and I want to call attention to a prevalent, and I'm only going to visit this for a moment, but I think it's worth mentioning. There's a prevalent attitude out there. This, it's sort of this resigned thing of saying, well, all we can do is pray. <laughs> that ain't it. When Paul and Silas arrived in Thessalonica, chances were pretty good that they still sported the bruises, the wounds that they'd received in Philippi when they'd been beaten with rods and thrown into jail. How did they occupy their time after they got put in the clink? We're told in Acts 16 that at midnight they were in their cells praying, singing hymns to God, and that was just before the earthquake struck and the prison doors opened. Think that's a coincidence? I don't think so. Folks, we need to learn to seek God first in everything. We need to have a prayer life. I, my prayer, and I'm not there by any stretch, but my prayer, my, my prayer to God about my prayer life is, Lord, help me to just be in that place where I'm not even conscious of when I stop praying and I'm just there. I'm just dwelling on things because I want to be constantly. The Bible says pray without ceasing. Pray chronically. That's the same word for chronically. It's like if you have a bad, pray like you have a bad cough. That's the, that's the picture there. He says, pray without ceasing. Lift these things up. And so Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they are lifting up the Thessalonians. That powerful work that they had experienced had burned something into their souls, and they knew it. They knew that God was doing something really spectacular there. In verse 3, Paul makes three observations about the Thessalonians. He talks about their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope. So in verses 9 and 10, and we'll look at those more next week, he reveals specifically what those are. 
So what was their work of faith? In verse 9, he says, you turned from idols. You came out of the world. You embraced Christ by faith. That is your work of faith. What was their labor of love? In verse 9 again, he says, you're serving the living and true God. Oh, how my heart just is burdened that the church would understand that we are called to servanthood, that we are called not, it's not about what we do. It's an attitude of the heart that manifests in deeds. It's, it's difficult to, uh, to explain. But it, when we understand that Jesus, our great model in these things, said, look, if you want to be great in the kingdom, you go low. If you want to understand what it is to serve God, put on an apron, get used to washing feet. And he's not talking about literally washing feet, but that's the attitude of the heart. He calls us to be servants. And Paul here is recognizing these people are serving the living and the true God. What was their patience of hope? They're living expectantly. Uh, They're waiting for his son from heaven who delivers them from the wrath to come. That's what we're told in verse 10. So he mentions those things in verse 3, and then he fills in the blanks in verse 9 and 10. Uh, It's just beautiful how that lays out. Now in verse 4, he speaks of divine election. And I don't think he was reading Calvin. Uh, (laughs) Interesting. Election is mentioned six times in the New Testament. And I don't have a problem with it at all. If you know the Lord Jesus, you are the elect. You want to know how you become the elect? Choose Jesus. It's both sides. In Acts chapter 9, uh, I don't think Paul had a problem with it either, by the way. Uh, Acts chapter 9, Paul, he's in Damascus. After the, 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 the light on the road, he's blind and Ananias is there. And God tells Ananias that Paul was a chosen vessel of his. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 tells us that God chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Now let's understand why Paul says that in the context here. Remember there's a huge outpouring of God's spirit in the city of Thessalonica. Great multitudes turning to Christ very short amount of time. This is a huge revival. So as Paul speaks of divine election, he's simply reminding the Thessalonians that what had happened in their city was not due to the work of any man. He's saying, this is something God did. This is not something that that we did. Remember, you're elect. You were elected of God. He started the church there in less than ideal circumstances, run out of town after only three weekends with them. Yet the church was strong full of life. He knew all that had happened, Paul did, and all that continued to take place in Thessalonica as Timothy related these things to him. But he knew all of it was beyond his abilities, beyond his strengths. This was 100% a work of God. That's why he brings up election. Verse 5, he says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. That's He's, he's getting after the same thing here. Uh, he says, in power, and the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. So he says that they lived responsibly, and they lived well among them. They lived above reproach without deceit or craftiness or some crooked agenda, which is noteworthy. I look out on the spiritual landscape, and there are a lot of men that I could not say that about. So what he's saying is, look, we came, we shared God's word with you, but it didn't stop there. It was God who took that word and by his spirit drove it into your hearts. That's the process, folks. If you're getting anything out of this this morning, it ain't because of me. 
It's because God is taking his word. He is faithful to his word. And he's taking that word, driving it into your heart. That's how we could each give a report on how God dealt with us or what he spoke to us, what he did in us on any given Sunday. And we would get as many different reports as there are people in the room, all from the same word. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is getting at here. He's saying, look, it wasn't us. It was the Spirit of God. We simply were available. We were willing to show up. We were willing to be used. We were willing to serve, but we were utterly reliant upon God to do the work. That hasn't changed, folks. Down through the ages, that dynamic, that spiritual dynamic is still what drives his people and what drives his church. It's also the miracle of the new birth. Man might supply the words, but it's God who supplies the power to transform lives. And the Thessalonians were being transformed. So as we wrap up this morning, I just want to take a couple of, we're going to have a little bit of a shorter study because we want to have a meeting afterwards. I don't want to give time for that. I know you all are busy. How does this apply to us? I want to look at three things briefly. And the first is this. He says, grace to you and peace. As he begins this letter, thinking about grace, how's that going in your life? Do you walk in the conscious reality of the grace of God resting upon your life in your heart of hearts, let's be honest? Or do you tend to be more demanding of yourself than God is? I'm convinced that there are a lot of unhappy or unfulfilled Christians out there who either don't believe or don't understand that the grace of God that's been extended to them personally. It's personal. If you don't have a firm grip of grace, it's gonna, it, it will cause you to, to not live to the potential that God has called you to live. You've got to understand that it's, it, it's him saying from heaven, I love you, not because you're all that worth my love. I love you because I am a loving God, because I choose to love you. It's unmerited favor. And when you come into the grace of God, he pours it out on your life in such measure that it's limitless grace. You can't exhaust it. Once you've been forgiven for your sins, you can't get unforgiven. He pours it on. If you blew it this morning with your spouse or or you have some area in your life, confess it, receive God's grace for it, and move on. Don't walk around under condemnation, being kicked around by the devil and being kicked around because you don't feel like you measure up. Guess what? You don't. Neither do I. By the grace of God, we come together. So how's it going with the grace? It's also interesting that people that are not walking in grace tend to uh, not be very gracious towards others. If that's you, commit to growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Commit to receiving his grace and then extend that to others, people around you. Uh, And folks, you'll be glad that you did. (laughs) And I might mention, so will they. It's an interesting dynamic. When we understand the grace of God being extended to our lives, when people bump into my life, I want to spill the grace of God onto them. It's a wonderful dynamic. It's the stuff that the kingdom runs on. More I could say, but I I want to move on here. The second thing is, are you living expectantly? Now, it's one thing to talk about the coming of Christ. There's a lot of chatter out there about that. It's another thing to believe it and to live it. That's the stuff of radical discipleship. Are you waiting for his soon return? Are you living your life in the shadow of his coming? Understanding, folks, it could be before we get to the door. Live expectantly. Live with the understanding that he has promised and he is very good about keeping his promises. He has uh, like this really good like 100% track record. 
And he said, look, I'm coming back for you, my bride. In my father's house are many dwelling places, but I go to prepare a place for you. I remember standing at the synagogue in Capernaum where Jesus taught often, looking out over the ruins there of the city. And I may have shared this before, but it was a powerful moment for me. And, and I'm looking at there these like waist high stone pillars where the, the houses had been 2000 years before. And you can see the, the rectangles for where the houses were. And, and I'm, I'm looking at Peter's house is off in the distance. The Catholic church built this big weird thing with a glass floor and stuff. Anyway, so I'm standing there at the synagogue and I'm looking, I'm, I'm kind of hanging on the rail and I'm looking and, and, and I, and there's like square pillars all around in this rectangle and then like across the back, there was a whole series of round pillars. And I said, Arie, that was our guide, a Messianic Jew, wonderful guy. Uh, what's with that? I don't understand. And he said, well, in, in ancient times, that what would happen is people lived in communal homes. And so when a man got betrothed to his wife, he would, during the time of the betrothal, go back to his father's house and he would subdivide. He would expand his father's house. He would prepare a place for his bride. I began to weep because I, you know, I'm already there. I'm already thinking about Jesus saying, you know, in my father's house are many. It's not mansions. It's dwelling places. What I realized in that moment, it's not about the house. It's about the one who's coming to take his bride. What a powerful, powerful illustration that that just drove home in my heart. It's like, oh, Lord, come. Just I can't wait for you to come and to take your bride out of this dirt hole. <laughs> Sometimes the way I look at it. So are you living expectantly? We're going to be talking about that a lot in this study. Because guess what, folks? It's getting darker by the day out there. It's getting weirder and weirder. And it won't take much. And stick around for the meeting. We're going to talk about some plans that we have to expand in different areas of ministry to hopefully anticipate the potential for persecution coming because it's not far. It's at the door. And if you don't see that, you need to open your eyes. It's true. Now, I'm not being an alarmist. I'm not, you know, overreacting. But there's a lot going on out there. We don't need to live in fear, but we do need to live expectantly. The third thing, as we live expectantly, as we walk in grace, receiving God's grace, extending his grace, looking for his soon return while we wait. So what do we do while we wait? It's about faith working, love laboring, and hope hanging on. That's what he says here. It's not my opinion. Faith, hope, and love are the trinity of the New Testament with regard to Christian, not, not the major, not the trinity, but the trinity with regard to, to Christian character. That's the character that God wants to build in all of us. If you're reading your Bible, you see that a lot. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, which is the best known, I mean, that famous passage on love, Paul says, now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. And the greatest of these is love. That's because in Corinth, when he wrote it, the dominant theme of what was necessary was love. Here in 1 Thessalonians, it's the very first time these three are put together. It's faith, love, and hope. It's changed up. Because the dominant theme here, as we'll see as we study this book together, is the blessed hope of the church, the waiting for Jesus Christ. So while we wait, it's about faith working, love laboring, and hope hanging on, waiting for his return. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word this morning. Oh, Lord, I pray for each one here, each one that's perhaps catching us online. 
that we would live expectantly, that we would live our lives in the shadow of your soon return. Lord, that as we have our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we would live well, even as circumstances degenerate and erode, even as trouble comes, Lord, that we would be a people set apart for your use. Lord, give us the ability to live well in difficult days. Give us the ability, supernatural ability, to serve you with with all our hearts. Give us the ability, Lord, to love well as we reach out to a really screwed up world, as we speak Christ, the name of Christ, into it, and as you use us, Lord, to reach others for him. We give ourselves afresh to you now. We pray that you would work in us and through us. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for this wonderful book. Can't wait to get further into it. We give it all to you. In Jesus' name.